Can you hear that? How authentic is this? We've come out into actual nature to test the new Stonic, and we've even driven off-road. 20 feet off-road, but hey. Anyway, new Stonic, is it the next big thing in microscopic SUVs, or just a Kia Rio with an elevated sense of self-importance? Let's find out. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Website for that, obviously, or you can click the card that's on screen now. Stonic is, of course, derived from Stanisius, who was the illegitimate son of Folliculus Prime, the ancient Greco-Roman god of body waxing and depilatory treatments of that nature, you know, god of veet, etc. I'm sorry? <sighs> really? Are you certain? <sighs> Look, does it really matter? Does it really matter, like... It's in the script, babe, and I don't friggin' think I put it there. A lot of their SUV names are derived from mythology. I'm just saying, like, friggin' Seltos, allegedly. <laughs> Did you even bother fact-checking a single aspect of this script before you gave it to me? I thought so. Hey, uh, what are you wearing? Really? I do like that one. Yeah. Keep up the good work then. Yeah, okay. Look, I gotta go. I love you too. Bye. So look, we're just gonna have to cut that bit and that bit and that bit. Oh yeah, okay? I'll do that for sure. Yeah. You sure? Yeah, yeah. You're not gonna forget? I might forget. Sorry. Great. I've been told there's actually no mystical dimension to the name Stonic. It's really just a mashup of the word sporty and tonic. Disappointingly, but hey, I guess that's allowed and I'd suggest that it's still better than Tita or Etron or Probe or Escort or even Bighorn. So when you look at it like that, we're a long way from scraping the bottom of the automotive names barrel. Let's get a few things straight, okay? A Kia Stonic is a Kia Rio, only with added roof rails, infinitesimally more luggage space, and 43 millimetres of additional ground clearance. Count them. And different hair and makeup, of course. This will cost you five and a half grand extra, roughly. As far as the safety dudes at ANCAP were concerned, after an engineering analysis, which probably took them 30 seconds, including a coffee break, they decided Stonic was actually a variant of Rio. So the Stonic gets 
the Rio's 2017 five-star safety rating. No crash testing was required for this determination. Basically, they're the same vehicle. And we've seen this kind of cloning before with crossovers and cars. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just that you need to realize Stonic is Rio, just like Subaru XV is Impreza Hatch. Of course, some manufacturers manage to do this without changing the name, like Toyota does with Yaris and Yaris Cross. Either way, bean counters within car makers, they jump at this kind of thing, mainly because the fundamental R&D is already in the can, amortised and paid for. You just jack the car up a bit, you give it marginally different styling, a bit of Botox if you're lucky, you slap on a new badge and there's a brand new SUV at a fraction of the cost of developing a standalone bespoke model. Don't get me wrong here, Stonic is an awesome styling exercise. It looks great, the proportions are spot on and the front end came together particularly well in my epistemically subjective opinion, especially on the GT line which you're predominantly looking at in this review. But with cars being the fashion statement they often are in the minds of many, there's all too frequently a line in the sand with the letters SUV on one side, the must-have side of the equation, and it is kind of non-negotiable to some people. So there's gonna be people out there, and you might be intimate with one, occasionally, for whom only an SUV will do, and this ultimatum will doubtless be delivered to you in some way, but probably not, in the manner of the butler handing you a gilt-edged envelope. And for those people, whom I would argue can't see the forest for the trees on this issue, Stonic will be a contender in the way that Rio won't. Stonic is priced and equipped, frankly, competitively against its peers, such as the Mazda CX-3 and Big Sisters Venue. You'll pay roughly like 10 grand more for a fully loaded CX-3, however, the Mazda's not a ripoff, okay? CX-3 delivers roughly 50% more power from its two-litre four-cylinder engine, and it has all-wheel drive and adaptive cruise at the top of the range, for example, both of which the Stonic lacks. However, if you go dollar for dollar with CX-3, you're looking at maybe a front-drive CX-3 Max Sport, and then you're back to manual seats and non-adaptive cruise control and smaller 16-inch alloy wheels. The Stonic GT line starts looking pretty damn sharp against a Max Sport CX-3. Hyundai Venue is closer to a direct Stonic competitor on spec and price. And like Stonic, Venue is front drive only, but even here, Venue will give you about 25% better power to weight ratio, which translates directly to straight line performance. So I guess there's your box set of three diminutive SUVs if you want to duck out and have a quick test drive today, comparatively. CX-3, I suppose, for polish and performance, Stonic as a price leader and venue sort of in the middle. Just make sure when you're out there doing that, that you test drive variants at the same price point, otherwise this is gonna skew your perception. Now, perhaps you are wondering why we proud Schitzvillian sons of Anzacs are only just getting the Stonic now, after the rest of the world managed to get its hands on it back in 2017. And this is a consequence of a supply production constraint issue. 
See, four years ago, the boys upstairs at Kia, you know, just below the 38th parallel, gave Kia Schittsville a product ultimatum of sorts. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially they said, Seltos or Stonic, Australian dudes? Just pick one because you are not getting both. Kia Schittsville gives this due consideration and then they go, well, since you put it like that, we're going to take the son of Hercules, if that's okay with you. But only if you can make it Greek Hercules, because we do not want that far more common Roman Hercules, you know, like the one in the actual history books. <laughs> I do love nature. So, Kia Schittsville took Seltos, and to be fair, the progeny of Greek Hercules has been a real winner for them slash us. Seltos is a great contender if you want the next sized SUV up from Stonic, especially that 1.6 turbo, which goes like a friggin' cut cat and about which I am unreservedly enthusiastic. Like, Seltos murders a Subaru XV in a straight line in a fair fight. And frankly, it's the kind of murder where the crime scene dude is looking around at a friggin' pro-heart masterpiece all over the walls and on the floor, obviously, but only painted in hemoglobin. And I suppose if you want an SUV somewhere between Seltos and Stonic, you best try the Kona over at House of Big Sister. It's gonna be the one with the same cat lacerating 1.6 turbo powertrain, which is awesome, and therefore it's pretty friggin' handy with the knife too, in my view, and a facelift is due any moment now, so you could hang around and get the new look one, or perhaps score yourself a bit of a bargain on the run out. Anyway, today of course, Stonic's supply has eased up happily, and the 37.9th parallel prohibition on Stonic for Wishit's villains has been happily reversed. And here we all are, caught up four years late, but at least all present and accounted for now, with Stonic rolling out into Kia dealerships across our wide brown land. Yes. And I think we all know why it's really brown. Hilariously enough, in the press conference for the launch of Stonic in Australia, the marketing dude from Kia, Dean Norbiato, actually referred to this vehicle as a, quote, pocket rocket. Now, you can probably see the truth from there, in fairness, but I'd suggest that a pocket rocket is two things, right? It's a diminutive car with a reasonably high power output and a ball parking at just a power to weight ratio of about 90 to 100 watts per kilogram, okay? Below that, not so much. And the GT line here, well, it's coming in at 60-ish watts per kilo. So if it is a pocket rocket, it's not exactly the kind of rocket of which Werner von Braun would be proud. To be fair, the mid-rev performance on this engine is actually pretty good thanks to the turbo. The three-cylinder is typically raucous too. It's kind of got that shaking all over thing happening, which is rather nice if you're sufficiently motivated to get your snout out of your phone and have a real crack behind the wheel of the car from time to time. The way I see it, at the elastic limit of the English language, this car could be generously categorized as 
moderately sporty. But it's not a powertrain, frankly, that sets the world on fire. It's adequate, it's kind of like a Rio, because hey, it's a Rio, but it's not the kind of car you would buy if you really want genuinely sporty, engaging, driving enthusiasm performance. Like, it's just not. Stonic GT line gets a nice taut suspension tune in line with its Saturn V aspirations. But if you're at the dealership taking a test drive and you find it a little bit stiff to your liking, make sure you drive the Sport as well, which prioritises refinement over that engaging dynamic thing. This particular Stonic is the range-topping GT line, which comes with a one-litre three-cylinder turbocharged engine. Interestingly enough though, it has exactly the same peak power output as the 1.4 litre four-cylinder Atmo engine in the Sport, okay? But if you want to know why a three-cylinder turbo with the same power is better than a 1.4 litre four with Atmo induction with the same power, then we'd best go back to the Fat Cave for the beer garden physics dissertation on that. Today's Beer Garden Physics Dissertation proudly brought to you by the Mighty King. If you're going into a difficult negotiation, I'd suggest there are very few situations where the 46mm King Dick slugging spanner won't be a net asset. So, let's look at this quandary, shall we? You're going to buy the 1.4 litre four-cylinder or the one litre turbo three-cylinder? Because so many dudes, they just look at the specs, man, and they go, well, 74 kilowatts and 74 kilowatts, same power, I'll buy the cheap one. And they don't think about it more deeply than that. But I would suggest that power is so important because it's what makes vehicles accelerate, okay? And it's not just peak power because that's what this is, okay? Peak power. What's really important is how much power is an engine gonna deliver at other revs as well, because you don't always drive at 6,000 RPM, or you don't always drive from 4,500 to 6,000, right? You're operating across a wide range of revs. And what really matters is how the engine performs across all of those revs. You know, this is something that so many people should consider more, and yet they do not. So I guess we've got to look at the beer garden physics of this and actually get our math nerd on just ever so slightly, okay? And the thing you have to realize is that torque, which a lot of people T-A-L-K about, is really just a building block of power, okay? Torque is nothing on its own. It doesn't make the car go at all unless it's also happening at revs. So power, which makes the car accelerate, is a product of torque and revs. And this is this dodgy Greek symbol, omega, okay? And it really just is a physics lab thing for revs, okay? But it can't be in RPM because for technical reasons that we're not gonna talk about here, except you really need to reduce RPM to per second because physics works in mass, length, and time when time is in seconds and length is in meters and mass is in kilos. That's just how it rolls. Or different units over in Imperialsville, which we'll get to in just a sec. But 
The problem with even revs per second is it's not really dimensionless, okay? You need to convert it to this thing called radians per second. Derivation here, if you're interested, not going to go through it, but you need to convert it to radians per second. There's two pi radians for every revolution. That's just how it rolls, okay? And when you do this derivation, which you need not bother yourself with. You need to know that if you're working in kilowatts and newton meters, the relationship is this. So power equals torque times RPM divided by 9,549, 9, get it right, if you're working in kilowatts and newton meters. And that has to be in newton meters, and this will be in kilowatts if you use nine and a half thousand broadly okay if you're working in imperial units you want to use feet pound and you want to use you know horsepower then it's just a different number down the bottom to accommodate all those different variables the different units basically it's 5252 all you need to do it's the same derivation but you just have to realize that one horsepower is 550 foot pounds per second, okay? And a lot of people always bail me up on this in the comments. They say it's pounds feet, not foot pounds. And I'd suggest to you that it doesn't matter. It's either because they are multiplied and the order of operations doesn't matter when two numbers are multiplied because four times three is the same as three times four. So pounds force times feet is the same as feet times pounds force. That's what we're talking about here, okay? So this is the formula that we need. We're gonna work in the metric system, okay? And this is the formula that we need to figure out more about how those two engines are gonna perform across a broader rev range. And here's how this works. So we got these data, okay? We've got the peak power in both cases and we've got the peak torque in both cases. They're the numbers that Kia tells us about these engines, okay? And if we work out what the power is at 133 newton meters and 4,000 RPM, it's 55 kilowatts at 4,000 RPM. So the 1.4 cylinder, the 1.4 litre four-cylinder is delivering 55 kilowatts at 4,000 RPM. And then as the revs climb to 6,000, the power also climbs to 74 kilowatts, all right? And the caveat on this is got to be wide open throttle because the power output of an engine is also kind of dependent on how hard you're pressing the loud pedal, okay? If we do the same mathematics for the peak torque with the one litre three-cylinder engine, we get 72 kilowatts at 4,000 RPM and 27 kilowatts at 1,500 RPM. And that's kind of interesting because the torque is the same and only the revs are different. The reason the power is different is because the power is also proportional to the revs, okay? I hope that makes sense. And anyway, if we graph, therefore, what we know about these engines on the same bit of graph paper, then what we're basically doing, I've graphed the green one in a dashed line because we don't know anything about the shape of the curve between the two known points, all right? We know that the torque's gonna diminish as the revs drop, but we know this point and we know that point. And with the other engine, with a one liter three cylinder, we know all of these points, okay? So that's kind of interesting, right? And you'll note that there's this vertical gap in between the dashed green line and the red line in both cases. And that represents the performance potential that is lost across the rev range if you are driving the 1.4 as opposed to the one liter three cylinder. So I think you'd agree, when you pull out to overtake 
for example, you're not always going to be at 6,000 RPM. You can't just operate the engine continuously at 6,000, right? You have to be at some lower revs and then you rev up to 6,000 and you change back. See, at 6,000 RPM, both of those engines are going to cause both of those vehicles to accelerate roughly the same. There'll be a slight difference in mass, obviously, but the acceleration's gonna be the same broadly, okay? But below those revs, when you're doing like 4,000, let's say the gearbox shifts up from, I don't know, third to fourth gear and the revs drop back to 4,000 RPM or something, there is this massive gap here and we can even measure it. It's like 55 to 72 kilowatts, which is about 30% difference worth of power. And that's going to make a massive difference to how your Stonic accelerates for overtaking, okay? So if you're on the open road a lot, one litre three-cylinder, no-brainer, much better for overtaking. Three cylinders are certainly a novelty, so let's just go over some of the basics here. A three cylinder engine is essentially an inline six that's just cut in half, okay? That's how this works. But there are a few problems with doing that, and one of them is that because the firing pulses are unbalanced, the engine tends to rock longitudinally along the crankshaft like this as it's rotating. So it's kind of rocking like that, and in addition to that, because you've got fewer firing pulses than a six-cylinder or a five-cylinder or a four-cylinder or something, then it's going to be rougher, okay? There's not going to be... The more cylinders, the more firing pulses for any given number of revs, therefore smoother delivery of power, okay? So it stands to reason that three cylinders are rougher than fours, fives, sixes or eights when it comes to delivering the firing pulses. And if you think about it like this, okay, if an engine is operating notionally at 3000 RPM, it's easy to crunch the numbers in your head on 3000 because it's 50 revs per second divided by 60, 3,000 divided by 60, 50 revs. Four-stroke engine is going to have one firing pulse per cylinder for every two revs, okay? So at 3,000 RPM, there's going to be 25 firing pulses per cylinder, okay? And that means in a three-cylinder, 75 firing pulses per second, okay? In a four-cylinder, it's going to be 100. In a five-cylinder, it's going to be 125. And in a six-cylinder, it's going to be 150, like that. And in a V8, it's going to be 200. And that's why multi-cylinder engines get smoother with more cylinders. So I hope that kind of makes sense. The other thing to note is that many manufacturers have come to the conclusion that the optimal cylinder size for engines is half a liter with the bore slightly narrower than the stroke because that sort of optimizes the combustion chamber size and it takes the flame front less time to propagate right to the edges okay and that's sort of counterintuitive because uh, you know prevailing wisdom says for high performance engines you want a shorter stroke sort of thing but actually for things like efficiency and to optimize the combustion chamber you really do want the stroke to be slightly longer than the bore okay and this makes me wonder about one litre three-cylinder engines, of which there's quite a few, might they not be better off as Harley-Davidson-style V-twins? I kind of like that concept. I'd like to see one anyway. I'd like to go for a drive in a V-twin-powered one-litre engine car, a two-cylinder. Finally, just taking a little look around the market now of other three-cylinder engines and how Stonic compares to the competition. 
competition. I'm using the term loosely because I wouldn't put a BMW i8 up against a Stonic anytime soon or the Yaris GR. Anyway, what we've got here is the cars with three-cylinder engines. We've got the peak power output. Then we've got the specific power, which is the number of kilowatts per litre of displacement. Otherwise, it's not a fair fight. The bigger engine's going to win, okay? And importantly, the fuel spec as well, minimum octane rating for those engines. And that's kind of important too, because obviously, if you're a manufacturer and you've tuned your engine for 95 versus 91, you can get more performance out of it because the mixture will tolerate greater compression. Greater compression allows expansion through a greater range, more thermal efficiency, more power, blah, 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 okay? So here's how all of this stacks up. Lowest specific power is the Mini 1.5 Turbo with, uh, despite being tuned for 95 octane fuel, all right? So that's a bit of a surprise. Next is Stonic on 74, and then these engines just ramp up in terms of their specific power output. Interestingly, the Fiesta 1.5T is huge on the specific power output despite sharing the Stonic's thirst for 91 octane fuel. And that's kind of interesting as well. And I really wonder, therefore, about the durability of this engine because we're talking, you know, 24 kilowatts per litre or roughly a third more specific power output from the Fiesta. And Ford does have that reputation for just falling apart, doesn't it? And underdoing the design in so many different ways, especially in high performance engine applications. I'm not suggesting the Fiesta ST 1.5 turbo is a dog at all. I'd be very interested to see how its longevity plays out though because other high performance engines from Ford have turned into dogs. And interestingly, you know, the Yaris GR is off the chart and so is the BMW i8. No big surprises there. The rest of these engines though that notionally outclass the Stonic require 95 octane fuel, which is kind of a fail in Australia because when you're shopping in the cheap seats, it doesn't make sense to buy a cheap slash affordable car and then have to feed it really, really expensive fuel, does it? Anyway, that's how the market kind of stacks up here. These are the more three cylinders than I thought there would be in the market once I had a proper look. And I really do want to see that V-twin one litre turbocharged Stonic, you know, get your motor running, head out on the highway born to be mild. The Harley-Davidson collaboration with Kia. Please make it happen. The seven-speed dual-clutch transmission in the GT line is quite engaging too if you choose to drive this car as if searching for its pocket rocket potential. And it is quite adaptive too. If your teenage son, for example, borrows this vehicle overnight, you will know if he's been thrashing its tits off because the drive characteristics will be totally different tomorrow morning than when you park the car yesterday afternoon. So there's that. You've just got to remember, however, that dual clutch transmissions are typically not that refined at low speed maneuvering. So it really is a case of accepting the strengths here and learning to live with the weaknesses. But just hang on a sec, okay? Before you jump to the hasty conclusion that DCTs are all crap, 
They're just not, dude. They're good at sporty driving. They're kind of mediocre at maneuvering at low speeds, but they save you six to 10% on fuel every time the car is turning and burning. A conventional auto is the polar opposite of that. So I guess it kind of depends on your priorities, such as how much you enjoy paying for petrol. A couple of things I don't really like. Number one, the flat bottom steering wheel on the GT line. Now, flat bottom steering wheels have their place, obviously, and that place would be in race cars. In fact, in the kind of race cars where the driver can't get in without having his legs amputated otherwise. In every other car, and I'm looking at you Audi for making this a thing, in every other car the flat bottom steering wheel is an ergonomic step backwards. That's just how this is. And another thing we should really dwell on momentarily is, although they've done quite a nice job with the infotainment system generally, what I would say about that is that they've managed to put a right-hand drive vehicle together with a left-hand drive optimized screen. Because when you're sitting here on the right-hand side of the car driving the damn car and you want to reach for the home screen, you have to reach as far away as possible to the top left-hand corner, which is, of course, the optimal position for left-hand drive. And I have to ask myself, how difficult would it actually be to write, you know, half a dozen different lines of code in the OS for the infotainment screen to just move those buttons around and have left-hand drive and right-hand drive optimized versions of the infotainment screen, thereby not alienating the small proportion of the world, including Australia, which chooses to drive on this side of the damn car. And finally, one of the things that has worked out just fine with this car is Kia, Australia's local bespoke tune of the suspension for our crap roads. That's worked out really well because this car is actually a delight to throw around on a piece of twisty road. The chassis is just stiff enough to be responsive without being too harsh in the bump absorption domain. So 13 points out of a possible 10 for that. And thankfully, this is one of the few things that COVID has not gotten itself in the way of. Even missed the bump and the beep. Yes! That beeping, squawking, wheel-grabbing, alleged safety crap. What a complete pain in the ass. And this is on all modern cars, not just the Stonic, just for clarification, okay? I don't know how many takes out there on location that safety crap has ruined for me, but it's gotta be hundreds by now, so thanks a lot. It's an intrusive, badly executed set of systems implemented by all car makers in an effort to appease agencies like ANCAP so that the cars can be awarded five stars. And I do so love politics in all its many and varied flavours. And you thought it was there just to save your life, right? Well, I'd suggest if that were the case, it would be implemented quite differently. It just would. Talk to any psychologist specialising in human factors for design. After a week driving the Stonic GT line, and I do hate to shatter the illusion here, but when you've been doing this for three decades or something, the vast majority of your time driving loan cars from manufacturers is just the same boring crap driving as everyone else. A to B in traffic, dudes, like 
Jesus, that's not actually driving in my view. It's just wasting your life in a car. But it's how people actually use cars and assessing them like that is kind of important, right? And while the suspension tune on the Stonic GT line is just Goldilocks for me, and I do love that about that car, I really do think they could have done much better with the powertrain. Because to me, it's simply not refined enough. It surges all over the place, and the operant characteristics of the dual-clutch transmission seem to feed back into the three-cylinder and vice versa in a quite inopportune way. The engine showcases the worst features of the transmission, in my opinion, and the transmission returns the favour, sadly. Like, DCTs are great when they can predict the future with some certainty, like out on the open road or when you're just gunning it off the mark. They're really good at that. They select the right next gear and they shift brilliantly at, generally, exactly the right time. But in traffic, the future is not so clear-cut or easy to predict, and they get wrong-footed pretty easily. And this engine, which is hardly a torque monster, has quite the hard time making up the difference in a refined way, frankly. It seems somewhat better in sport mode, but even then, every time I restarted the Stonic, it defaulted to eco mode, which was quite a pain. I mean, I want the car to restart in the configuration which I took the trouble to set up last time I drove it. You know, I'm kind of funny like that. Unfortunately, the conditions in which the powertrain displays its least refined characteristics are the same conditions, it seems to me, that a vehicle like this is most likely to operate in, like urban running around A to B, up to the shops or something, in traffic. I'd be quite interested to see if the 1.4 Atmo engine with its conventional auto in Stonic Sport is any more refined in these conditions. Like, I wouldn't be looking forward to 30% less power in the mid-rev range, which is part of the deal with that 1.4, but the torque converter auto will definitely be smoother in these sort of traffic, confusing conditions for the DCT. There is, of course, a class of buyer out there who could not give a dead dingo's donger about things like powertrains. As long as the car starts and it gets you from here to there and keeps up with the traffic, it's all good, okay? And I'm obviously not talking to you about the powertrain. If that's the benchmark for you, then the Stonic three-cylinder DCT is going to be fine. My strong advice would be, however, to test drive both the Sport and the GT back-to-back -back in the kinds of conditions in which you will mainly drive and just see which of the pair ticks the most boxes for you. It might be the 1.4. And hey, you might like the raucous one-litre three-cylinder turbo in the GT line. That's allowed too. Perhaps I'm really just being a bitch. I do that from time to time, you might have noticed. Thank Christ for equality, right? Anyway, I came away loving the spec and the styling in the GT line. Like, okay, there's no driver's electric seat adjustment, no head-up display, no adaptive cruise, but you do get heaps of safety kit and you do have to factor in the price, which is absolutely quite sharp. The local product planning dudes in every car company, including Kia Schittsville, they're always in a war. They're waging war with the factory over what they can get spec-wise and what it's going to add to the price. And they've got a price point to meet, okay? And here we are in the most price-sensitive SUV segment. 
So that's always something of a balancing act that actual car buyers don't generally appreciate. And on balance, as hardships go, okay, sitting in a Stonic GT line is not exactly the same thing as one last night in the Tower of Friggin' London and a date with the sword tomorrow at sunrise. You get some cool stuff. You get wireless Apple CarPlay and wireless Android Auto, but it's only wireless on the sport. You get it with voice commands using OK Google and Hey Siri, but you still have to plug in a friggin' cable for those phone integrations on the GT line. And this is so mainly because one of those two tech giants is having a tantrum with Kia right now over whose nav system gets to be the default display. So that's kind of dignified. Kia's not saying which of them is actively competing for the title of big tech's most comprehensive asshole. But if I had to bet on it, I'd suggest it's probably Apple. Anyway, across the range, you can connect two smartphones. Yes! Allowing you to argue endlessly with that special someone about whose music you're going to be playing for the 12 hours it takes you to get wherever. On holiday, perhaps. So that's quite nice. The driver's phone can be configured for hands-free calls, while the passengers can inflict notionally her music on notionally him slash you for what I'm sure will feel like an eternity, even if you're just driving up to the local shops. Yes. I'm not, frankly, all that certain that's a net step forward for human mobility. And, of course, you also get Hyundai Kia's impossibly excellent Sounds of Nature ambient backing tracks. Yes. I detailed those in my recent Palisade review, and I'll stick a clickable card link thing over up there, I think, somewhere now, if I can remember to do so in my dotage. If I have a senior moment, please be kind to me in the comments, or don't, I don't care. The bit you're looking for in that review is at about 27 minutes and 30 seconds in on the time code. I'm telling you that so you need not watch the whole thing. I mean, Christ, nobody deserves that. Stonic has exactly the same uplifting sounds. Whoever thinks this is a good idea, in my view, should be hung, drawn and quartered. And I hasten to add I'm speaking metaphorically. We don't actually do that kind of thing anymore as a society. Like, I don't know, we'd probably just give them counselling for a few weeks now. However, I am compelled to point out that people in the olden days did find that kind of conduct just as entertaining as us, watching reruns of I Dream of Genie or Hogan's Heroes. So there's that. Frankly, I have a far more serious problem with Stonic, and I've been wrestling with it for about a week now, so if you can, you might as well chime in and help me out with it. To date, it's been just the Ming Moles and me in a kiddie's inflatable pool full of aeroplane jelly, wrestling with this issue endlessly, like... All part of the job, dude. No extra charge for that. <laughs> There's no doubt that a Stonic is cooler than a Rio, right? At least to some people, okay? But what do I say to the dude or dudette who emails me in a flap and says, I'm thinking about buying a Stonic. What do you recommend? And I even posed this question to Damien Meredith, the Chief Operating Officer of Kia in Australia. And I go like, Damo, dude... Someone asked me that. How else might I respond but with buy a Rio, dude, like same vehicle, five and a half grand cheaper? What do I say? So 
Kia's position on this is, right, they price their cars competitively for the segments in which they compete. And I would retort, yeah, dudes, that's true, you do. Among micro SUVs, including the CX-3 in the venue, Stonic is quite competitive on spec and price. However, to me, out here in the cheap seats on that increasingly distant parallel world where people make decisions based on facts, so quaint, it just makes better sense to buy a Rio, doesn't it? Unless you desperately need that 40 millimetres of extra ground clearance. <laughs> got a particularly rough driveway, maybe you've got a driveway with a big hump in it or something, that might make sense. But at the same time, if that's not you, I cannot actually see where the extra five and a half grand goes, okay? Stepping from a Rio to a Stonic. Like, it's a 25%-ish price hike. And the way I look at it, it's not 25% more car. It might be 5 to 10% more car, but not 25. And let's not forget, with some SUVs, okay, that 5 to 10 grand step up in extra price from a roughly equivalent car gets you, perhaps, a different powertrain, like one with a diesel engine and or on-demand all-wheel drive, both of which would give the vehicle, even if only slightly, more actual adventuring capability. It would certainly justify the price hike, right? I can see where the money goes on all that additional hardware in cases such as that. But these kinds of upgrades are not part of the deal when the Rio emerges from its cocoon, grabs the nearest mirror, and sees a Stonic staring back at itself, right? So I'm still kind of struggling with the price, and I guess my message to you, therefore, is to at least consider a Rio if you have Stonic on your shortlist. Like, five and a half grand does buy one rather a lot of weed and hot tub time, hypothetically speaking. Gag reel coming up in just a sec, lest you harbour any latent misconception that I am some kind of one-take wonder out there on location. Far from it, dude. But first, I would like to give a quick shout-out to Rod and Tomo from Tonic Films who helped me shoot that piss-take on news and current affairs at the start of this review. Thanks a lot, fellas. I really do appreciate the assistance there. Collaborating with other humans on location and not having to worry about exposure, white balance and focus, like, so friggin' liberating. The Tonic Dudes also shot the epic B-roll you've been watching for this review. Tonicfilms.tv for more information on them. And now, entertainingly, here's me royally screwing it up in front of witnesses such as Rod and Tomo and now also in front of you. Stonic is, of course, derived from Stanisius, who was the illegitimate son of a f Was the illegitimate son of a f The illegitimate son of a f oh, for f sake. That is just Every different flavour of typical, isn't it? Yeah. And thankfully, COVID, oh, man, get it right, that if you don't have a flat bottom on the wheel of your race car, the driver has to, has, has to. It's actually quite fun to throw around, okay? And what I'd suggest, you safety warning system. <laughs> 